out tonight, and uh, I'm going to finish Mark tonight. I know I told you last week I was going to finish last week, and I told a story because I got to thinking, I don't want to end it with Jesus commissioning us. I want to end it where Mark ends it, which is Jesus seated at the right hand of God. And so that's where we're going to end it. And not to mention, Jeff Kelly told me we have a CD pack for 16 and you only did 15. But that's not my motive. All right, let's. Oh, and Finding the Rock. Last class. God bless you, Finding the Rock. I'm sorry, George. I don't forget about you. I just forget. God bless Finding the Rock. And there they go. I thought they were looking at me kind of funny. And we're looking forward to that graduation this Saturday morning. That's going to be great. All right. Mark 16. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord kept working with them and confirming the message by the attesting signs and miracles that closely accompanied it Amen, so be it. Thank you for your word, Lord. Bless us and open our understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good tonight. <laughs> Amen. Now, uh, I have so enjoyed, I, I, what I can't believe, y'all, is that we have been on the book of Mark for four months. I can't believe that. But it's true. Uh, that's, that, we, we have spent 16 weeks on it and there's 16 chapters. That's pretty good. I did a chapter a week. For me, that is a miracle, as you well know. But now, um, Mark is only one of four Gospels, the only one of the four Gospels that tells us that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. And I found that very intriguing. He leaves Jesus Christ ascending and being seated at the right hand of God. Now Luke tells us he ascended, but only Mark tells us that he sat down at the right hand of the power or of God. And then I began to look into it, and there's something very, very crucial and very important um, to this whole concept of Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. And I found it a lot. Jesus told Pilate, for instance, after his betrayal and his arrest, and Pilate's got him in front of him, and Pilate basically says, answer for yourself, who are you? Are you the son of God? And so on and so forth. And Jesus looked at him without flinching and said, hereafter, you're going to see the son of man sitting at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. So there Jesus himself said, that's where I'm going, and Mark tells us that's where he went. When Stephen was being stoned to death, the Bible records in the book of Acts chapter 7 verse 55 that Stephen being filled with the Holy Spirit, think of it, as the rocks were striking him in the head. He's bleeding, he's dying. And, but being filled with the Spirit, it says, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And what did he see? Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Uh, you know, I like to think that he's usually sitting at the right hand of God, but when it was somebody being martyred, he stood up to greet him. 
standing at the right hand of God. Paul tells us in Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 34, that Jesus is risen from the dead and is even at the right hand of God. And what is he doing there? Making intercession for you and me. Jesus is praying for you right now. And he's doing it at the right hand of God. In Ephesians 1, verse 20, and I'll be coming back to this verse uh, in a little bit. But in Ephesians 1, 20, once again, Paul states this theological, physical fact that God raised Jesus from the dead and then seated him, says Paul, at the right hand in the heavenly places. So somewhere in heaven, the third heaven, there is a location, there is a place where God dwells. And it's geographical, it's physical, it's real, it's tangible, it's there. And right at his right hand is seated Jesus Christ. In Colossians 3.1, we are told that we are to seek those things that are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Six times in Hebrews, I counted, we're told of Jesus being seated at God's right hand. Six times. Why does the Bible keep mentioning this? Why would it matter that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God? But it's, it's repeated over and over and over by Paul. And even Peter chimes in. In chapter 3, verse 22 of 1 Peter, and he says, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Both Mark and Luke close out with Jesus having come from heaven via the womb of a virgin and then ascending back into heaven, having conquered death, hell, and the grave. So I wanted to end this series with Jesus where he is now. The Gospels open up with him coming. They close out with him going back where he came from. And he's seated at the right hand of God. Paul lays out for us now, what is the significance of it? Paul tells us the significance of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. He says, first of all, Jesus is far above all rule, all power, all might, and all dominion. Now I want you to catch that because that is really powerful. We tend to think, well, maybe the greatest force on earth is nuclear. Maybe the greatest force on earth is America's military weaponry. We are known as the mightiest nation on earth. So maybe the greatest force on earth is a hundred megaton atomic blast. It's not. The greatest force in the universe is the force you can't see. It's the forces you can't reach out and touch. The greatest forces in the universe are spiritual. Believe me. The Bible says that by the very word of Jesus Christ, the atomic structure is held together. By his word. If he spoke all atomic structure, all matter, all molecular structure would dissipate, would fall apart, would, would come apart. It's held together, according to Colossians, by the word of Jesus. The greatest power is spiritual. That's the greatest power. And he names them rulers, 
power, might, and dominion. That is a list of spiritual powers, fallen and unfallen. It's talking about unfallen angels, cherubims, seraphims, the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's talking about demon powers, where Paul, again, gives us this list in the, in the end of this letter, Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, that I just quoted from you, he gives us this list. But then in Ephesians 6, he does it again, five chapters later. And he says, we're not battling flesh and blood, but we're battling principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness that is, that is in heavenly places. The warfare we're involved in is in heavenly spheres. It is in the spiritual dimension, the fourth dimension. It is not physical. And like the wind, you can't see a spiritual force, but you can see what it does. And so what we're being told here is that Jesus at the right hand of God, it says Jesus has been placed far above all rulers, principalities, powers, demonic forces, good forces, every name that is named in heaven and earth and under the earth. Jesus at the right hand of God has been given total supremacy over all of them. There is not a spiritual force or a physical force that comes near, even close, even remotely near Jesus Christ. Jesus says Paul is exalted far above, far above. Now, I think we need to know this because we need to know the one we worship is not a first century wimp walking around in sandals saying good things with long hair and a beard and blue eyes. But he has been made Lord of Lords king of kings, and is over everything. He is seated at the right hand of all ultimate power. The, the word, the Greek word, when it says far above, above, it's a, it's a word that means exceedingly, abundantly, greatly, and richly. And the best way that I could put it to you is super abundantly. Super abundantly. His name and his personage and his authority and his reach and his power is super abundantly above the greatest spirit of darkness that exists. Give me the greatest, give me the devil himself. Jesus is super abundantly above him. The greatest archangel that has never fallen, Michael, Gabriel, Jesus is super abundantly above them. He is in his own stratosphere, high and lifted up, exalted above all. I tell you, that ought to get us excited. We worship the winner, not the loser. The conqueror, not the defeated one. He's the boss, not Bruce Springsteen. Jesus is the boss of the whole universe. And history is racing towards his return. And believe me, when he returns, everybody, there's not going to be any argument. There's not going to be any voting. There's not going to be any, well, you know what, I'm going to go do my own thing. You go ahead and take over the world. It says every knee is going to have to bow. Why? Because the ultimate authority will return. 
every tongue will have to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father because he has made him higher than everything. And then the second thing we're told about Jesus being at the right hand of God, not only does it represent ultimate authority, ultimate power, superabundantly above all other power and all other authority, but it says that he's the head of the church. Now that blesses me. God has appointed him, Paul wrote, the universal and supreme head of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now I want you to notice his description. He says Jesus is the head, we're the body. So you've got a head and you've got a body. Jesus is the head of the church. And the church, you, turn to your neighbor and tell them, that means you. The body of Christ, Jesus is the head, and you are the body. Now, will you agree with me that a head can't do a whole lot without a body? And a body can't do anything without a head. And isn't it silly for the church to think we can just go off on our own and leave the head back here? You can't. Because the minute you leave the head, you go into spasms and you are not in charge any longer of the body. The body functions best when the head is directing it. Amen? Are you in agreement with me? See, you nodded just then. You know why? Because your head told you to. You know, you get a little itch on your face, your head tells you, reach up and scratch it. You don't even think about it. Because the body is subject to the head. And the head directs the body. And this is the way, our relationship to him, according to Paul, is, ex, is totally connected. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Same thing. What is in the vine flows into the branches. What is in the head flows down to the body. The head gives direction to the body. The head tells the body to care for itself, to feed itself, to protect itself to nourish itself. It is the head that directs it. I'm able to stand up here and do this because my head lets me. My body is subject to my head, and so is yours. A head is totally non-functional without a body. A body cannot function without a head. Jesus is the head, and his, his people are the members. He is the vine, we're the branches. So we are so connected to him that you can't separate the two. Now we don't always act like the head thinks, do we? But we're still the body of Christ. He dwells in the church as life dwells in a living body. He fills it with his life. He replenishes it with his strength. He feeds it as his body and and with his comeliness we are covered we are glorified with his glory we are strengthened with his strength we're connected to the head paul then says that the church is the fullness of jesus who fills all in all we are the fullness 
of Jesus. And look what it says. I like this. It says Jesus fills the body all in all. When I read that, it strikes me that Jesus is the one who fills. Jesus fills us. Jesus fills us. It doesn't mean that the church has arrived. When I read that and I say, well, he's the, he, he fills us with the fullness and we're filled to the full and, and it makes it sound like we're perfect or we're perfected, but we're not. He's saying that he's working in us. He is in the process of bringing his bride into maturity, into the fullness of the stature of Christ. He fills us. What I like about this is when Paul says he fills us, that he is the fullness of him who fills everything to the full, I, I realize that Jesus is not an emptier. Can I tell you that about him? He's not an emptier. He's a filler. Jesus is not an emptier. He's not a destroyer. He's not a taker. I learned a long time ago, if Jesus takes something out of my life, it is only because he wants to put something far better into my life. He never subtracts but what he adds. Jesus is a filler. Can you say that with me? Jesus is a filler. You can't go wrong following him because whatever you were when you came to him, wherever you were in life when you came to him, he is going to fill you to a better place. He's going to take you to a higher level. He never subtracts and marginalizes and diminishes those who come to him. He takes freaky people and turns them into normal people. He does not take normal people and turn them into freaks. He's a filler, one who completes us, enriches us, betters us, restores us, gifts us, strengthens his body, develops his body, maximizes the potential of his body. You know, I say, I say to people who are afraid to come to him, I say, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. If I came to him, I'm afraid I would not be able to party anymore. I'm afraid that, that he, he would he put a Bible in my hand and I'd have to start dressing in a way I don't want and go to some straight-laced, boring church that I don't want to go to. And I'm afraid of what God would do to me. And I say, let me tell you something. He's not going to do anything to you. He's going to do a lot of things for you. And what he will do is he will complete you. He will fill you. You are complete in him who is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So he fills us. And when you stop and think about God, God is one who fills anything he creates. Have you ever thought about that? God doesn't create us in a vacuum. When he creates something, he fills it. Think about it. He filled the ocean with water. And then he filled the water with marine life. He created the sky and said, that's not good enough. And he filled it with birds. He created space and said, well, that looks kind of empty. And filled it with stars and galaxies and worlds that we haven't even found yet. He created the earth and he filled it with countless species of living things. That's what our God does. And when you became a new creation in Christ, he filled you with the Holy Spirit. I mean, when God gets his hand on something, he doesn't empty it. He doesn't deplete it. He doesn't marginalize it. He fills it and blesses it and multiplies it. Isn't that good news? He is the fullness 
And the body of Christ is the expression of that fullness. So you know what I see when I look at you and I come out here on a Sunday and look at the congregation that God is giving us? I see God taking a congregation of people and I know that he's working to fill you. Fill you with purpose. Fill you with character. Fill you with hope. It's the devil that empties you. It's the devil that depletes you. It's the devil. You know, um, you know that I collected a lot of things when I was a kid. Um, a lot of, a lot of. Uh, I had the marbles, and I had the collected the rocks, and I collected the comic books. I also collected plants. You know, what my favorite plant was it was a Venus flycatcher. And you don't know what a Venus flycatcher is. It's a carnivorous plant, and it opens like this. And on the inside, it's pink, and there's three little hair-like triggers on the inside of that Venus flycatcher. Now, I want you to realize that Paul tells us in Romans 1 that God made the things we can see to teach us about things we cannot see. And I used to get this Venus flycatcher and think, what a picture of temptation and the devil. Because when that fly comes around, there is a fragrance that plant puts off that draws the fly. When he lands on that Venus flycatcher, if he tricks one of those little hair-like triggers one time, it doesn't do one thing. He's got to dabble. He's got to mess with it. He's got to fool with it for a minute. If he tricks any one of those hair-like triggers twice or more, and it closes in, and you hear him. <laughs> this may not go on the radio. <laughs> and after a while... There is silence, and it grows tighter. After about three days, it opens up, and all that's in there is the shell of what used to be. I thought, that's just what the devil does to people. He says, come on, have a little meth. Have a little alcohol. Come on, have a little dope. Have a little immorality. Come on, man, all that church stuff, don't listen to that mess. And you go in, and you begin to dabble. And you dabble one time, and nothing bad happens to you. You go, it was a big lie. I can go out and have a good time, and you dabble more. And then before you know it, what you had now has you. And it grows tighter. And we hear you. Everybody around you hears you. Help me, help me. But after a while, there's silence. And we'll see you a year or so down the road, and we don't know you because you're a shell of what you used to be. Why? Because the devil depletes you. The devil robs you. The devil steals from you. He marginalizes you and diminishes you and cheats you and lies to you. But you come to him, to the Lord Jesus Christ, it says he fills you. He fills you with life. He sets you free from the Venus flytraps of life. He, he fills you with purpose and fills you with joy and fills you with wisdom, fills you with his word. He fills you to the full. And before you know it, a few years go by and you're beginning to walk in spiritual maturity in the fullness of the stature of Christ. And that's what he's telling us here. Jesus, just like he did creation, he does the same thing with you. He fills you with good things. Jesus is at God's right hand, and he is now and forevermore the undisputed ruler of all things. And he's the head 
that fills and activates and guides and protects his body, the church. So that if you hurt, he feels it. If you're a finger and you hurt, he feels it. If you're a foot, he feels it. You're his body. He's very aware of you. Somebody said to me one time, well, I'm going to tell you why I don't believe in prayer. And I'll close with this. I don't believe in prayer because how in the world can God hear a billion prayers coming up to him at once from all over the world? I thought, you know, that's a good point. And I thought about that for a while. Then I thought, you know, if somebody came towards me with a thousand needles and stuck me all at once with a thousand needles, I'd feel every one of them. And I could tell you exactly where they stuck me. And I'm finite and I'm limited. But I would feel every needle stick, even if there was a thousand of them, right when they happen. And if I have the capacity to feel that much input from that many locations, (laughs) then God can hear a billion prayers coming to him at once. Can we stand together? Well, we're going to have a prayer, and we're going to let everybody get on the road. We love you. We'll see you in church Sunday. And don't miss it, because remember, the message is going to be the secret. The secret, okay? God bless the people as they go home. Bless us as we travel. And thank you for your protection in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Give the Lord a hand. Have a good night.